You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we are so very grateful to you for your word. You have given it to us, and it is a rich blessing. You know, it is a blessing to have your word in our own language, a blessing that many peoples on the face of this planet do not enjoy. And yet we have it in such abundance, and it is before us, and you've given us not only your word, but also your spirit to understand your word. And it is our desire that we would understand your word today, that you would be our teacher and our guide, and sanctify us by your truth and incline our hearts to your word, and through your word, create in us a hunger, not only for the truth, but for the one who is truth incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we come to know him more and more, and may you be glorified in our study and our time together over your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are back in John chapter 12 after a brief two-week break to look at two Old Testament passages uh, that are quoted here in the 12th chapter. We're finishing up the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and uh, we're not going to be looking at that. We're going to be looking at some of the responses to that that John records. Uh, John does in the 12th chapter what we've seen him do in many other chapters. He will record a major incident, a major event, and then he will tell us all the various people and their reactions to that event. And we learn as much from the reactions of different people as we do from the event itself. And uh, so that is the same thing we see here in the 12th chapter. We have the, uh, remember this is, there are three major events in John 12. The anointing by Mary of Jesus for burial. The second is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the third is a group of Greeks who seek out Jesus to see him, to, to, to talk with him. And uh, we're looking today kind of at that third event. But before we get to the third event, there is a, a, a little, a small text, as it were, of these different various people and their reaction to the triumphal entry. So John has given us the first two events, and now he's going to tell us how the various people reacted to the triumphal entry. And then we're going to look at these Greeks who are seeking Jesus. So during this final week in the life of the Lord Jesus, there is a lot of activity. The crowds in Jerusalem were unimaginable in their largeness. They were huge crowds. And so there's a lot of things going on. And uh, in this 12th chapter, John focuses now in on all of the various people and different people groups. And in this passage, verses 16 to 22, there are all kinds of different groups of people mentioned. And so we're going to be looking at four of them specifically. Look at verse 16, and I'll give you kind of the outline of what we're going to be looking at. Verse 16 is the disciples and their lack of understanding. Verse 16, then these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Verses 17 and 18 is a couple more groups of people. Verse 17, so the people who were with him when he raised Lazarus from the tomb and called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard that he had performed the signs. So that's the second group of people, those who are with Lazarus and people in the crowd now who had seen the, the triumphal entry and were now going out to meet Jesus because they had heard about the sign. A third group is the frustrated Pharisees in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. And then the fourth group of people is in verses 22 to 20 or 20 to 22, and it is this group of Greeks who were seeking Jesus. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. 
And Jesus answered them saying, and we're not going to get into verse 23 until next week. So those are our four groups. We have the disciples and their understanding of what had happened. Then we have a group of people in the crowd who began to seek out Jesus. The third group is these frustrated Pharisees. And then the fourth group is these Greeks who are seeking Jesus. So let's begin with the first group, the disciples in verse 16. Read it again. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Now that is sort of a candid admission by John on behalf of the other disciples, the apostles then, of how much they actually understood when they were watching the events of the Palm Sunday unfold in front of them. John confesses, we didn't understand at the time the real significance of what was happening. Now it's not that John didn't and the disciples didn't understand anything. It's that they didn't understand the depth of significance of what they were seeing unfold in front of them. And by these things, John has in mind everything that we have read about concerning Jesus and his triumphal entry. He's talking about the crowd shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The being sent by Jesus to go fetch the donkey and bring those to Jesus. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. They didn't understand the meaning of all of those things. I mean, they were caught up in some way, in some measure, just as the crowd was in the events as they unfolded. But the real significance of it, John says at the time, that they were clueless concerning the real significance of what was unfolding. That's kind of a kind of a candid admission, is it not? For John to say, we didn't get it. I mean, we thought we got it, but we just didn't get it at the time. It wasn't until Jesus was glorified. And by that, John doesn't just mean after the resurrection and after the ascension. But when John says until Jesus was glorified, he means Jesus was glorified and they had received the Holy Spirit. Because in John's mind, those two things are connected. They are necessarily connected. It's not just that it was not till after Jesus left us that we understood these things, but it was not until after John had received the Holy Spirit that they fully understood the depth of what was of what was unfolding. The ascension of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit, those two things, though separated by ten days, those two things are necessarily connected to one another, and they are certainly in John's mind. And back in John chapter 7, verse 39, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. After Jesus gave to them the promise that if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Then John gives this comment. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Those two things are connected. The giving of the Spirit and the uh, the glorification of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit. So... In John chapter 7, the Spirit was not given because Jesus was not glorified. Here in John chapter 12, John says, we didn't understand these things until Jesus was glorified. And by that he means not only Jesus' glorification, his ascension into heaven, but the giving of the Holy Spirit. And that's the promise that Jesus gave to the disciples in John chapter 14. When Jesus said, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In John 16, 13, Jesus said, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. That was the promise of Jesus. You don't understand everything now, but when I am gone from you, is glorified, I will send the spirit. He will guide you and lead you into all truth. That was a promise to the apostles, to those disciples, that the spirit, this would be part of the ministry of the spirit, that the spirit would teach them and instruct them in the things of the truth. And here's John's confession. We didn't know what was going on until after Jesus was glorified. Then, once they received the Holy Spirit, suddenly John was able to see everything that he never saw before and understood things that he had never understood before. It was the ministry of the Spirit who gave John that insight. And John says it wasn't 
that they didn't understand what was happening in front of them. I mean, are we to believe that the crowd understood what was going on, but the disciples didn't? That's not what John is saying. John is saying the crowd understood it, and we understood the same thing that the crowd understood. But you understand that there is a difference between understanding something and understanding something, right? You see what's unfolding. John got the allusion to Psalm 118. He understood that these things were happening, and he understood they wanted the King of David. He understood who Jesus was. But here are the things that the disciples did not understand until after the Spirit was given. They didn't understand the nature of this king. They didn't understand the timing of his kingdom. They didn't understand how the coming of the kingdom would come about. All of these things were hidden from them. They thought they understood what was going on, but once they had the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden it came clear to them. And John says, we didn't understand that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. What was it that was written of him? Psalm 118, Zechariah 9. You see, what Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and the crowd was hailing out Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who brings in the coming kingdom of our father David. And as Jesus was riding on a donkey, John never connected those events with Psalm 18. The disciples never connected those events with Zechariah 9. And wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall of one of the disciples' uh, homes when they're sitting there reading Zechariah someday and they read, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and seated on a donkey. And you say, that was... And you say to yourself, that was speaking of Jesus. I was there when that happened. I forgot that Zechariah prophesied that. This was all in fulfillment of prophecy. And John would get it. He had forgotten, didn't understand that those things were written of Jesus. But once he had the Holy Spirit, he saw Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. I don't mean that in a hyper-literal sense. He saw Jesus everywhere. In the Psalms, in the prophets, he understood it like never before. The crowd kind of got it. They understood what they were doing. But they didn't have the depth of understanding that John has. And this should remind us of a couple of things. First, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. We understand that. First Corinthians chapter 2, the one who is without the Holy Spirit does not understand spiritual things. Spiritual things are understood by spiritual people. No man knows the mind, Paul says in First Corinthians 2, no man knows the mind of a man except the Spirit of the man that is in him. And even so, nobody knows the mind of the Spirit except the Spirit of God that is in him. Only the Spirit of God knows the mind of the Spirit, and it's only the Holy Spirit that can reveal spiritual truth to spiritual people. Natural men who do not have the Holy Spirit do not have access to the same level of understanding, the same type of understanding of spiritual truth that the Christian has access to. We should be reminded of that. Unbelievers don't understand spiritual things. Don't expect them to understand spiritual things. A second thing that we should be encouraged by this is that sometimes it takes a while before we really understand the plain truths. Have you ever read a passage of Scripture that you've read, you've memorized, you've read a hundred times, and suddenly you read it and it's like you understand it for the first time? That's not the result of your intellect. That's not because you're brilliant, you're smart, and you read it somewhere else. You know what that is? It's the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. And sometimes we read a passage of Scripture and we think we understand what is there, we think we understand what we're seeing, and then there comes a point where we see these things in a way that we've never seen them before. Suddenly we see the significance that it's Jesus who is being spoken of here. This is There's spiritual depth to this passage now that I understand that I never understood before. How embarrassing is it that we have read and heard and listened to and done things so many times, and yet we fail to get the very simple lessons, often right at the first. It sometimes takes us a long time to catch up with things and to get things right. And this third one should be an encouragement to you as well. Sometimes the significance of our actions are not realized until later. Sometimes the significance of our actions are not realized until much later. This is the way it was with the disciples. Hey, the crowd is singing out Hosanna. We'll sing out Hosanna. He said, get a donkey. We get a donkey. Bring the donkey. Put him up on the donkey. Put the coats on the donkey. We want him to get hair all over his robe. So they put the coats up on the donkey. He sits on the donkey and they ride into Jerusalem with him. And it's not until much later that they realize the significance of what they were actually doing. And the same is true with you and I. 
Sometimes in serving the Lord, we do a small thing here and a small thing there, and then we attempt a big thing once in a while. But it's not until years later, maybe decades, maybe not even eternity, that we realize that we, like the disciples, are unconscious actors in a drama that God is doing behind the scenes, things that we never understand at the time that he is doing. The significance of our actions and the significance of teaching sometimes takes a long time to unfold, and that's the way it was with the disciples. Unconscious actors in the sense that they were not aware of the the real eternal significance of what they were doing and what was unfolding all the way around them. They didn't see it at the time, but later on they saw it. Well, that's the disciples and their understanding. Now look at the second group, and this is the crowd. Verse 17. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went out went and met him because they had heard that he had performed this sign. So there's two groups of people mentioned here. There's first that group of people that was with him in Bethany when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now you can imagine that on on Palm Sunday and around Passover, the excitement and anticipation of the crowd was at a fever pitch. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a king. They wanted a kingdom. They wanted a ruler. They wanted the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. That was their expectation. So their anticipation, their excitement is at fever pitch. And... Inside of that crowd, with all of that anticipation and expectation and excitement, is a group of people who were out in Bethany a couple months earlier, maybe we don't know the timing of it, but several weeks earlier, when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And those people who were there and saw that, they began and kept on testifying about Jesus and the resurrection of Lazarus. It's interesting to, it should be interesting to us, at least it's interesting to me, that some two months probably after the resurrection of Lazarus, this was still the topic of the day. Don't miss the significance of that event. The resurrection of Lazarus was so significant and so and so altering to these circumstances that even in the midst of Passover, with everything that is unfolding, those people were talking about it. Who is this group of people that was there in Bethany? It was the Jews, John says in chapter 11, who went from came from Jerusalem out to Bethany, only two miles away, to comfort Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So there was a, a group of Jews there. Remember, there were some Jews who were comforting Mary in the home, in the home while Martha was out talking with Jesus. And then when Martha came and said, the teacher is asking for you, Mary got up and left. And who went out of the house with Mary? All of the Jews, they're unnamed, but they're people from Jerusalem who were in the house with Mary. They went out to the tomb as well. So at the resurrection of Lazarus, there could have been dozens of witnesses there. And those who were there saw this event, and now they are in Jerusalem talking about it. So you can imagine that it was the talk of the town. I doubt that you could have walked down the streets of Jerusalem, any street, and ducked into a Dunkin' Donuts, a Krispy Kreme, or a Starbucks anywhere and not heard people talking about this. Everybody was talking about it. And they would be saying things like, hey, what do you think about the, the, all this ruckus and Jesus of Nazareth riding in on a donkey like that into Jerusalem? Quite an event, wasn't it? Oh yeah, he, he could be the real deal. He might be the son of David. Maybe he's the one we're expecting. And by the way, I heard something about Lazarus and him being raised from the dead. And then somebody else sitting at the table next to drinking their little latte would say, hey, you heard about that? I was there that day. Let me tell you what happened. Lazarus was dead, and not just dead, but dead, dead, four days dead, and Jesus called him out of the tomb. So who is this man who can raise the dead and heal the sick, and now he's riding into Jerusalem, the fulfillment of prophecy, the son of David? We should be excited about this. Everybody was talking about it, and the testimony and the word was spreading, and this actually frustrated the the, the Pharisees, as you're going to see in a moment. But look what John says when, when he says in verse 18, for this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So there's a group, a crowd of Jews who are going out to Jesus. He didn't stay in Jerusalem after the triumphal entry. They went out to Jesus to meet him. And why were they seeking him? Because they had heard what? That he had performed this sign. Now that is the mark of this group of people that we have seen mark so many crowds and so many groups of people all the way through John's Gospel. 
There are crowds who sought after Jesus who were in no way savingly related to him. Jesus was very popular among people who did not know him. And these were people, they're just like the previous crowd in John chapter 12, verses 9 to 11, where it says a large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and that they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. These are thrill seekers. They're curiosity seekers. They're looking for an opportunity to go out and to see this one who has done this miracle. Everybody's talking about him. They're seeking some curiosity, something spectacular. Maybe they're going out to see a sign themselves. But when they heard that he had performed this sign, they said, we want to see him too. This is not genuine saving faith. John doesn't say these people went out there because they felt the weight of their sin and they wanted to be forgiven. John doesn't say the people went out there because they, they felt the, the curse of the law and they needed a redeemer. It doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say that they expressed genuine faith, that they believed. None of that. They went out because they had heard that he performed the sign. They're thrill seekers. And just as it is true in our day that many people think very positively about Jesus without actually knowing him, so it was with the crowds. Jesus was very popular among people who were not saved. The same thing in our day, is it not? Churches are filled with people who think very positive things, very good things about Jesus, but they're not saved. They don't, they don't hate their sin. They've never come to him for salvation. They've never repented. They're not really trusting him. They celebrate his birthday. They think very positively of him. But as we've seen before in John, thinking and believing very orthodox and good things about Jesus is not sufficient for salvation. These people believed that he was the son of David, that he was the king of Israel, that he was the king of the Jews, that he was a miracle worker, that he could raise people from the dead. They believed all of that about Jesus. All of it's true. All of it is very orthodox. But they were not saved. They came out to him because they wanted to see a sign. And what did Jesus say about a generation that seeks after a sign? It is wicked and perverse. Blessed is that generation that hears his word and believes it and takes God at his word. That is true faith. Not seeking him because he performs some sign. That's just a thrill-seeking A thrill-seeking curiosity seeker is all that is. Now look at this third group, and that is the frustrated Pharisees in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now that is a statement of their exasperation, and they are exasperated. This is their lament. These poor Pharisees now have watched their arch enemy ride into their city on the back of a donkey to the hail of tens of thousands of people singing his praise. And I think it is the Gospel of Luke that records that they were frustrated and tried to rebuke Jesus for letting his disciples do this. And Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for trying to rebuke him. So they are very frustrated at what they have watched unfold and that the entire crowd seems to be after Jesus. This frustrated them because they have done everything seemingly in their power to draw attention away from Jesus and to keep something like this from happening. What have they done? They have questioned the legitimacy of his conception and his birth, his lineage. They have accused him of being possessed of a devil. They have accused him of doing what he does by the power of Beelzebub. They've called him a false prophet, a false teacher, a deceiver. They have argued with him in the temple. They've tried to seize him. They've tried to stone him. They threatened to excommunicate anybody who even spoke positively of him. And they did that with the man born blind in chapter 9. They have done everything in their power to to quench just this type of uh, this type of excitement by the crowd. And it seems that the more the Pharisees do, the more people go after Jesus. It seems that the more they try to, to suppress this, the more people love him. And he was very popular at the moment. And this frustrated them. Look, what are you doing? What you are doing, you can almost picture them standing up somewhere where they can see the entire city, and they watch all of this unfold, and they're expressing their frustration to one another. Look what you're doing. It's not doing any good. 
not what I'm doing, it's what you're doing. You're, what you're doing is not doing any good. And this is their frustration. And look at their lament. The world has gone after him. Now, is that a true statement? Had every individual in the world gone after Jesus? No, but like with John's use of the word world throughout his gospel, he's not talking about every person without exception, every individual in Jerusalem, because obviously it wasn't true of the Pharisees. He is talking about every person type of people without distinction. It is a hyperbole. It is an overstatement for the, for the sake of making a point. The world has gone after him. And to the Pharisees, this is exactly what it looked like. All of the crowds, everybody is going after him. They had been trying to stop him, and they had put out word to everybody and ordered the people, if anybody knows where Jesus is at, you are to tell us so that we might arrest him. That was the end of chapter 11. And now here he is right under their noses. He's not even coming into Jerusalem secretly. He rode in on the back of a donkey amongst all of the crowds. He is publicly open to everybody. It's not that some people knew where he was at at any given time. It's that everybody knew where he was at, always. So why didn't they arrest him now? Why didn't they arrest him? Because the crowd would riot. They feared the crowd. Public sentiment was on his side. And the crowd was going after him. And they knew that here he is right in plain view. We could, we could walk down there and seize him. He's not even in hiding and we can't do anything. Because, because everybody's following after him. Everybody's singing his praises. Everybody wants to be around him. Everybody's going out to see him and to visit him. And he's not alone at any time. They can't get their hands on him because they can't get him alone and away from the crowds. And this is frustrating to them. The whole world has gone after him. And, and that statement, by the way, is one of these ironic statements in John that actually has meaning beyond what the people who speak it intended. Like Caiaphas, when Caiaphas said, it is better that one man die than that the whole nation perish. Well, what Caiaphas said was truer than what Caiaphas was thinking he was saying. It's the same thing here. When the Pharisees said the world has gone after him, in that statement is an element of truth. And the element of truth is this. It's not just the Jews who ended up seeking after Jesus and wanting an audience with him. It's not just the Jews who were going after him. It wasn't just in the plan of God to save the Jewish nation, but to save whom? To save the entire world. And John has been saying this since the beginning of his gospel. He came into his own and his own rejected him, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In John chapter uh, 3, it is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in John chapter 11, or John chapter 10, Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold of the Jews. I'm going to gather them together also. In John chapter 11, Jesus is going to gather in together into one all the children of God scattered abroad. That the purpose of God in the work of Christ is not just national with Israel, but international with Jews and Gentiles as well. So when the Pharisees say the world has gone after them, it's kind of John's way of saying, you know what, what they're saying was more true than what they cared to actually confess. And you see that from verse 20 and 20 to 22. This last group, the fourth group, that is some Greeks were seeking after Jesus. Read verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, we shouldn't think that this happens right on the heels of the triumphal entry. It's in Mark chapter... 11, verse 11, where Jesus, Mark says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, it wasn't first thing in the morning, it wasn't the middle of the day, it was later in the afternoon and toward the evening. And Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem, Mark says he went into the temple, he looked around at what was there, and then he and the twelve left immediately. So this event, the Greeks seeking Jesus, and what unfolds afterwards, likely happened the next day or at some point during that final week of Jesus' life. But it is a significant event that draws John's attention because in some way, 
it is a fulfillment of exactly what the Pharisees were saying. The world has gone after him. The very next statement is what? Greeks were seeking him. Who's the Greeks? These Greeks are Gentile people. Gentile men, probably. Gentile men who have a, a proselyte... Uh, that's not the right word. I'm trying to make a verb out of something that's not a verb. They had converted to Judaism out of their Greek pagan religion. So these are men who were Gentiles. They weren't Jews by birth. They weren't descendants of Abraham. But they had converted to Judaism. And John says in verse 20 that they had gone up to worship at the feast. So they're going up to celebrate the Passover with the Jews. But they're Greeks. So they're not just Greekish Jews. They're Greeks. They're Gentiles. They're completely non-Jews. And they came up and wanted to see Jesus. Now throughout John's Gospel, he's been alluding that the purpose of God in salvation is beyond just the Jewish nation. And here we see another expression. And I think that this is why this event caught John's attention is because he sees in this event the actual a step toward the fulfillment of God's intention to save all people and to bring in not just Jews but Gentiles into the plan and fold of God in salvation. He sees these Greeks seeking Jesus as sort of a first step toward that or an allusion to that. They had come and they had come seeking Jesus and they went to Philip. Now why Philip? Why Philip? It's interesting that John notes that it was Philip that he went to seek. Some have suggested that Philip, since it says in verse 20, uh, 1, verse 21, that Philip was from Bethsaida of Galilee, which was in the northern region of the nation. Bethsaida was a city that was near a Gentile region known as Decapolis. And so it's very possible that they sought out Philip because Philip lived in an area that was very close to Gentiles. Maybe Philip had some Gentiles in his family or among his friends, or he, he was maybe more Greek than the rest of the disciples. Some have noted that Philip's name out of all 12 disciples, Philip is the most Greek name of all 12 of the disciples. So it might be that these Greeks felt a little bit more comfortable coming to Philip than coming to any of the other disciples. But then Philip does something odd. Rather than just slotting these Greeks in to see Jesus, Philip went to Andrew. Why Andrew? Why doesn't Philip just go to Jesus? Why does he go in and seek out Andrew? Why was there some quandary as to whether or not these Greeks should be able to see Jesus? Why didn't Philip just say, you want to see Jesus? We can arrange that. I'm one of the twelve. We'll arrange it. We'll schedule it. You show up and I'll take you right to Jesus. Philip instead goes to Andrew, who was also from the city of Bethsaida. And there seems to be some discussion between the two of them because Philip and Andrew brought these two to Jesus. Now, by the way, this is how we see Andrew. Every time Andrew is mentioned in John's Gospel, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 42, it's Andrew who introduced Peter to Jesus, saying, we have found the Messiah. In John chapter 6, it's Andrew who brings the little boy with the five loaves and the two fish to Jesus. With the, Jesus uses that to multiply the bread and the fish. Whenever we see Andrew, Andrew's bringing somebody to Jesus. That just seems to be his character. I can imagine Andrew being a, a real uh, soft-hearted, tender individual who just he, he thinks about Jesus all the time and just wants to introduce people to Christ. You just you got to see the best thing on the planet, and Jesus is it. And when people come and he has an opportunity to introduce somebody to Jesus, he does so. That's just Andrew. So Andrew and Philip come and they tell Jesus, look, somebody wants to see you. And what's interesting in the rest of the passage is that there, there's no, there's no, um, there's, there's no account of the exchange between Jesus and the Greeks. But we are left to wonder, why didn't Philip take Jesus, take the Greeks to see Jesus? Why did he go to Andrew? And then why did Philip and Andrew come and see Jesus? I can suggest a couple of things. They're not stated, but this would be my speculation just from what we studied, a couple of things. First, it might be that Philip, as a Jew, felt very uncomfortable with the idea of taking Gentiles to see Jesus. 
If you remember from Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11, the disciples were not all that hot on the idea of Gentile conversion and being welcomed on the same basis as Jews into the family of God. Do you remember what happened when Peter went with Cornel- to, to visit Cornelius? Cornelius got saved, and when he got back to Jerusalem, what happened? The rest of the apostles stood around and said, wow, I was brave. Good job going to Gentiles. Way to take the kingdom of God to the past the borders of Israel. No, they didn't. The rest of the disciples called Peter in and took him to task, read him the riot act. What are you doing going and eating with Gentiles? And Peter told them the whole story. And what was their response? They said, well, I guess God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. I mean, it was just as reluctant as that. They weren't hot on the idea of Gentile conversion and Gentiles being welcomed into the family of God. It may be that Philip, as a Jew, looks at Jesus, who is a Jew, thinks this is our Jewish king, we're in a Jewish city. What A Gentile comes and wants to see Jesus. What do I do with this? This didn't happen every day. It's not like he said, we have a protocol for this. It's completely stunned by it. Gentiles wanted to see Jesus? I'm going to have to pass that by somebody else who's one of the twelve because I don't want to introduce him to Jesus if this is not something I should be doing. That may be what Andrew and Philip were thinking. Or it might be, and here's a second possibility, it might be that Andrew and Philip both feared, or at least Philip feared, what the response of the Pharisees and the people would be if they saw Jesus fraternizing with Gentiles. Now think about it. The crowd has just welcomed him as their king. He's just come into Jerusalem. They have praised him. They have hailed him. They have welcomed him. And public sentiment is obviously flowing in their favor. The crowds are going after him. People want to see him. This is a good thing. We've been waiting for this since John chapter 6 when they tried to take him by force and make him king. And now he's finally willing to receive the, the cries and the praise of the people to that end, making him king. And now Gentiles want to see him. What would people think if a Jewish king were spending time with Gentiles? What would the crowd think? You see, this is how politicians think, isn't it? I had to be careful who I'm seen associating with, lest my approval ratings go down. And maybe that's kind of what Philip is thinking. We don't want to lose the momentum of the crowd. If the crowd sees their Jewish king hanging out with Gentiles, they might not like that. And the winds are blowing and filling our messianic sails, and we don't want to change the course of events. Maybe that was part of his concern. But either way, it is Philip and Andrew who bring the Greeks to Jesus, or at least come and tell Jesus there are Greeks who want to seek after you, or seeking you, they want to, they want to see you, and the, and the implication is not that they just want to see you with their eyes, but they want an opportunity to interview you, they want to sit down and talk, they want some one-on-one time with you. Now, who are these Greeks and what are their motives? Do you notice that John doesn't say anything about their motives? He doesn't say why they're coming. Were they curiosity seekers? They just want to sort of catch a little bit of a closer look at this one that they have heard and seen come into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey? Were they thrill seekers? They heard about the miracles and they want to come as well. We don't know whether it's those or whether they're actually seeking salvation. But I would notice two things. John doesn't lump them in with the crowd who was seeking him because they performed the signs. That tells me that this group, their motives may be of a purer sort. It's also worth noting that the Greeks seeking after Jesus prompts this response by Jesus where he describes the nature and the effects of his death and that if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He's describing his death and what his death was going to do. It may be that these Greeks were seeking after Jesus for salvation, which prompts this entire discussion afterward of why, of, of his, of salvation and of the death of Christ. So it seems that their motives are different than the motives of the rest of the crowd. I would guess, if it were my guess, I would guess that this is a group of Greeks who have come to feel the weight of sin and they have come seeking Jesus. 
And these Greeks have come seeking Jesus in a way that Jews never did. Very few of them did. Very few Jews came to Jesus for salvation because they were seeking Him because they wanted their sins forgiven. You know why they came? Show us a sign. Multiply bread and fish. Walk on water. Raise somebody from the dead. Heal the sick. We want to see it. That's what they were after. It was a wicked and perverse generation. These Greeks don't, don't seem to be seeking for that. They, their motives seem to be of a purer sort. And we're going to look at Jesus' response to this in verses 23 and following next week. But let me make two final observations for you. First, this, this event, the Greeks seeking Jesus, is not an insignificant thing. Of all the things that John could have recorded in the last week of Jesus' life, he chose this. He chose three things. The anointing of Mary by Mary, the anointing by Mary of Jesus, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the Greeks seeking after Jesus. Of all the things he could have recorded, he chose those three. This is a significant event because there is a, a subtle symbolism that is being played out here. And here's the second thing I want you to notice. In the context of the final week in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jewish leadership of the nation is rejecting him. They're planning to kill him. And who is seeking after him for salvation? It's Gentiles. That is a contrast and an irony in this passage that seems intentional by John. Verse 19, the Pharisees, frustrated, they're lamenting the fact that the world has gone after him. And the Greeks are seeking him. The Jewish nation is rejecting him. Now, Right at this moment, it's just the leadership, but the crowds will soon follow suit, and they will reject him. And while the Jewish nation is rejecting him, Greeks are coming and seeking him for salvation. That shouldn't surprise us, because at the very beginning of this book, John told us, he came to his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So he came to his own, the Jewish people, they rejected him, and their rejection of him has become our salvation. And for that, we praise and glorify God. That in the infinite wisdom of God, the rejection of Christ by His own people has worked out to the salvation of Jews and Gentiles and a multitude of people from every tribe and kindred and tongue on the face of the planet. We give Him praise for that. And what you're seeing unfold here is the infinite wisdom of God. The hardening of these Jewish Pharisees' hearts toward Jesus, which results in salvation being offered up to the Gentiles. And today, you and I are the beneficiaries of that. Because they rejected Him. We get salvation because of what they did to him. They crucified him, and through his crucifixion, his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, we get life eternal and the forgiveness of sins. So let's rejoice together. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we do rejoice in your infinite wisdom and your plan of salvation. Thank you for giving to us a Savior. Thank you that in your wisdom and in your providence that you're those people who were called by you to inherit so many blessings rejected their Messiah so that he might die on a cross and be raised from the dead. And through his death and through his resurrection, we have eternal life. And that is our only hope for eternal life. We have nothing to offer to you. We have no righteousness of our own. We are not good in your sight without Christ and without regeneration and forgiveness. We are sinners and we were distant from you. Our hearts were hardened and darkened. Our minds and our intellect dark, darkened, unable to receive or respond to spiritual things. We thank you that by your grace you have called us to yourself. You opened our eyes and you chose a people for yourself from out of every tribe and kindred and tongue on the face of this planet, every nation. And we are grateful that by your grace you have included us in that number. It is all by your grace. It's by your choosing. It's by your providence and your sovereignty. And we thank you for your loving kindness which has been made known to us through Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.